welcome to the Hogan Lovell's Brexit podcast. I'm Susan Bright, the firm's managing partner for the UK and Africa and leader of our Brexit task force. As you can imagine, Brexit has somewhat taken over my work life since the UK voted to leave the EU back in June 2016. Since then, we've been doing a lot of thinking about what Brexit will mean for our clients, for businesses, for the UK, for the EU and for the rest of the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was part of our Navigating the Negotiations webinar series, which we've been running throughout 2017. You can find the slides that accompany the webinar and much, much more about Brexit on our hub at hoganlovells.com forward slash Brexit. We hope you find this podcast useful. Please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps others to find the podcast and make sure that you know when our next episode is released. Well, welcome everyone to our webinar on the impact of Brexit on insurance companies. The UK service yesterday of notice under Article 50 means that the UK will leave the European Union in two years' time, unless that deadline is extended by agreement between the UK and the other 27 European Union states. The clock is therefore ticking. All UK and European insurance businesses will now need to be considering the implementation of their plans to restructure. Since the referendum vote last year, we've been discussing restructuring options with a number of our clients and contacts. In this webinar, we wanted to provide a broader perspective on Brexit. We'll start with an overview of the restructuring options, but the bulk of this webinar will focus on the impact of Brexit in relation to data protection, sanctions, insolvency law, and competition law. We've given you on this slide details of some of our insurance partners. We have a truly global insurance team at Hogan Levels with 24 individuals listed in legal directories around the world. All of our team is well briefed on Brexit and happy to discuss any questions you may have. We have five speakers for our webinar today. Charlie Shute is going to talk about sanctions issues. We then have Eduardo Oosteran, who's going to discuss the impact of Brexit on data protection issues. After Eduardo, Joe Bannister is going to explain the possible impact of Brexit on insolvency law. And our final speaker is Angus Coulter, who's going to cover competition law. Finally, my name is Charles Ricks, and all of us are located in our London office. So let's turn to the first question, which is what you should do uh, now. We know from what the UK government has said that it accepts that the four freedoms of the single market are indivisible, and that as a result, the UK will not be seeking membership of the single market. We will be outside the EEA once we leave the European Union. The UK is therefore looking to negotiate a bespoke trade agreement. This will take time, probably longer than the two-year time period we have under Article 50 before we exit the European Union. The focus then for the UK and continental European business communities is on the agreement of transitional arrangements, which will apply two years hence to avoid the risk of businesses falling off a cliff edge. For insurance businesses, the preservation of passporting rights will be critical in these transitional arrangements. Whether this can be negotiated in time, or indeed at all, must be doubtful. A 
timetable which would apply to the restructuring of insurance businesses is lengthy and, it, and also depends on the availability and resources of particular regulators to respond. Most European regulators have up to 12 months to consider whether to approve an application for permission for a new subsidiary to conduct insurance business. And that 12-month period is almost always preceded by informal discussions on business plans. In addition, cross-border restructurings are always more complex because of the involvement of different regulatory regimes and indeed different regulators. In light of that, we think that most insurance businesses will need to start implementing their plans within the next few months. As I'm sure many of you saw this morning, some insurers have already announced restructuring plans. Only this morning, Lloyds of London announced that they'll be establishing a new subsidiary in Brussels. So what restructuring options are available? We've mentioned on this slide three options for restructuring. These are a UK insurer with an EEA UK with passporting rights, an EEA insurer with passporting rights with a UK branch authorised to conduct insurance business in the UK, and a Societas Europea, or European company. A European company has the advantage of being able to move from European jurisdiction to European jurisdiction by simply relocating its registered office. However, you need to remember <clears throat> that the company must still apply for and have the relevant permissions to conduct insurance business in whatever jurisdiction it chooses to locate itself in, and obviously take into account the timetable implications of the application for that permission. There is a further option available, which is simply to sell UK or continental European insurance businesses if the uh, implications of restructuring and additional costs um, are considered to be too great. Unsurprisingly, there are a significant number of issues to be considered in relation to the restructuring of UK and European insurance businesses. We've set out on this slide some of these issues. They include capital implications, the need for permissions to conduct insurance businesses, as I've already mentioned, which jurisdiction to locate a new subsidiary or European company in, and the waivers and reliefs to be obtained from a new regulator, for example, transitional measures, matching adjustment, and volatility adjustment. One point to note is that it should be possible to put in place services or outsourcing agreements between UK and European companies to mitigate the need to move business operations around. So how would a restructuring be achieved? Well, there are several options available. We've set out uh, the three main options on this slide. You could use Part 7 of the Financial Services and Markets Act. You could use the cross-border merger process, or you could form a European company. One point to note is that the cross-border merger process and the use of a European company may well be lost to UK insurance companies when the UK leaves the European Union. I'm now going to turn to questions that we've been asked by clients over the last few months in relation to equivalence and the EU-US covered agreement. The questions we get on equivalence are, does it matter? And is it a replacement for passporting? The short answer is that it's not a replacement for passporting, but it does matter. It matters for several reasons. Insurers in countries that are deemed to be equivalent do not have to apply solvency to capital rules. 
they can use their own capital rules when calculating group solvency. Equivalence is arguably even more important for reinsurers. This is because some European regulators have only allowed reinsurers of countries deemed to be equivalent to operate in their jurisdictions. So if your particular country is not deemed to be equivalent, some regulators won't allow you to operate in their country. This was one reason underlying the negotiation of the EU-US covered agreement. One point to note is that equivalence does not make any difference to approval of a group internal model. A group internal model will still be subject to approval by European regulators as well as UK regulators. Equivalence doesn't mean that the UK insurance regulatory regime would have to be identical to European insurance regulation. Bermuda's insurance regulation has been deemed equivalent to Solvency II, but its regulation is certainly not identical to European regulation. UK insurers should therefore still consider lobbying UK regulators and government for changes to UK insurance regulation, which might take effect after we leave the European Union. The question in relation to uh, the EU-US covered agreement is whether the UK would have to negotiate its own version of the covered agreement when it leaves the European Union. The short answer here is yes, it would. And that may not be an easy proposition given the America First statements that we have heard from the Trump administration. The covered agreement represents a significant step forwards in terms of the grant of equivalence to the US for Solvency II purposes and the further reduction in collateral requirements for European reinsurers operating in the US. Some doubt has been cast on the extent to which the covered agreement will be implemented in individual US states as a result of a letter from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners of 15 March. So we can expect further developments in relation to the covered agreement to come. But the UK will ultimately have to face into a negotiation of its own covered agreement with the US when it leaves the European Union. I'm now gonna hand over to Charlie Shute, who's going to talk about the impact of Brexit on sanctions law. Thanks, Charles. Afternoon, everybody. Uh, as you've just heard, I am going to be talking about the effect of Brexit on sanctions policy for both UK and EU companies. Uh, I'm going to be covering what is likely to change post-Brexit, what is unlikely to change, and most importantly, what insurance businesses can do in the meantime and going forward to account for Brexit in their ongoing sanctions and compliance policies. You've already heard that the UK is clearly heading for a hard Brexit. That is, we're going to be outside of the single market, outside of the customs union, and most importantly, for present purposes, we're going to be outside the EU common foreign and security policy. Some sort of deal will replace that infrastructure, but at present we don't know what that is. So at the moment, it certainly appears that the UK will not have input into EU sanctions. It won't be bound to implement EU sanctions, and it won't have any sort of formal say unless an alternative forum is put in place as to what those sanctions might be. As I've said, there's going to be no immediate forum unless one is established. We used to have a forum for these things. It was the EU. Uh, so we will need to establish some kind of 
area for, for discussion of sanctions in which the UK and the EU can collaborate uh, on autonomous measures and sanctions policy. Otherwise, there is a real risk of policy gaps opening up that can cause trouble for, for businesses working across Europe and globally. It cuts both ways, however. The EU going forward will be deprived of access to the UK in the formation of sanctions. Uh, in recent times, we've seen the UK very much at the forefront in advocating global sanctions programs. We saw that in the recent Russian sanctions program, where the UK pushed hard for comprehensive sanctions, despite widespread Russian interests in the city of London. So it remains to be seen whether, in the absence of the UK, we'll see a, a reduction in vigor of, of EU sanctions policymaking. And the EU certainly lied to that. They've specifically commented on the value of the UK's contribution. Having some sort of appropriate forum for sanctions making is also important because there are common interests in alignment between programs on an EU and UK level. Sanctions work best when they're targeted and the international community is aligned. For an example of that, you only need to look at the Iran program, which between 2010 and 2015 was one of the most comprehensive global sanctions regimes that we've seen. And it's been credited as a successful precursor to the joint plan of action under which we saw the Iran nuclear deal. Alignment's also important to ensure that one economy does not suffer disproportionately from the effect of sanctions. For example, in recent years, we've seen Norway and Switzerland suffer as a result of the Russian program of financial sanctions, Norway because of its shared border and shared interests with Russia, and Switzerland because of its status as a global financial center. Both of those were countries that adopted equivalent programs to the EU, but had no input into those program design, and they ultimately suffered the consequences of that. If measures are not aligned, then the EU and or the UK risk becoming a staging post for prescribed goods or risky activities on both an inbound basis, that is, people coming from outside the UK or the EU to conduct business there, which might not be permitted elsewhere, or on an outbound basis, UK companies or EU companies providing services outside those jurisdictions, which might be allowed in one but not allowed in the other. And on a selfish note, alignment, of course, makes the jobs of lawyers and compliance departments that little bit easier. So all this leads up to post-Brexit, the UK having sole influence over the design and application of its sanctions, which it hasn't had to do before. The European Court of Justice and the Commission won't be the bodies with oversight over sanctions anymore, so we're going to see a larger role for the UK regulators, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation and the Export Control Authority, as well as the English courts. Moving on to what is unlikely to change, the UK is going to remain a permanent member of the UN Security Council and obviously bound to implement UN Security Council resolutions. However, the difference here is going to be that the UK is going to have to implement those measures themselves, whereas previously they were able to rely on EU legislation. The UK has said in the past that UN sanctions need to be implemented more quickly. So query whether Brexit is going to help or hinder that 
there will be uh, less negotiation to do with the EU member states, but the UK's infrastructure will be less developed in that regard. Uh, rapid imposition of UN sanctions and consistent sanctions between jurisdictions will be very important to prevent asset flight. Asset flight from one jurisdiction to another if a harsher regime is implemented in one but not in the other. Other things that will stay the same for now, the Iran nuclear deal will remain in place, subject to anything Mr. Trump has to say. And the UK will also remain part of various supranational export control regimes. On the slides, you've got Bassanar in relation to arms and dual-use goods. There's also missile technology and nuclear suppliers on that list. Looking forward to business planning, Insurance companies very much need to be live to the impact of policy differentiation on their businesses, whether that is teams within the UK who have EU nationals in them or large groups who which operate, operate on a cross-border basis on a corporate level and in terms of covers uh, underwritten, where your cover holders are, where your brokers are, where your risks are. There is a much larger potential now for gaps between sanctions regimes. Traditionally, we found our clients have been able to fairly efficiently segregate US and EU exposed business. It will be much more difficult to do, I think, between EU and UK sanctions programs to the extent that there are differences. Um, in terms of what you should be doing now. Businesses should be maintaining close interfaces with the UK regulators who, as I've said, their role is going to grow and keep a close eye on ongoing negotiations for a trade deal because ultimately a lack of alignment on sanctions is going to make a trade deal much more difficult. So it is in the interest of both the EU and the UK to maintain a good level of consistency. So I think we're likely to see that on a political level, which means there is some cause for hope that consistency will continue going forward. But businesses definitely need to be lied to gaps opening up. On that, I'm now going to hand over to Eduardo, who's going to talk to us about data. Hello, good afternoon. So, Looking now at the future of the UK data protection regime, the reality is that, of course, that future will largely depend on the political option that the government chooses to follow. And, of course, there are, at this stage, there are a number of options that could be followed. Two of them are perhaps not very likely anymore. Uh, perhaps a few months ago, uh, options could have been to not progress with Brexit at all, or at the very least to remain part of the single market or be part of the EEA. What is perhaps more likely is that the UK will either become a bit like Switzerland, which will have some kind of associated status, like being a member of or EFTA, or indeed that it's not part of any kind of special association or regime with the rest of the European Union. And any 
of these options would have different ramifications from the point of view of the data protection framework. For example, if the UK had chosen to remain close enough to the EU to and to be or to be part of the single market, no doubt the UK would have not just adopted and implemented the GDPR, but would have continued with the plans that um, were adopted before the referendum took place. If, on the other hand, the UK were to go down the route of a, of a Switzerland, or for example, um, going on its own, the, chance, the uh, opportunities for perhaps creativity by the UK government will be greater. As a country that is sufficiently close to the EU, like being part of EFTA, the uh, Swiss Confederation has indicated that it will probably follow the GDPR quite closely, and that's something that the UK would do. But what is appearing much more likely at the moment is that the UK will have its own regime, which could be following the GDPR, indeed, the General Data Protection Regulation, or adopt its own version, or simply leave it as it is and just stay with the original Data Protection Act. Each of these options has, of course, its own or their own repercussions. Had the UK decided to stay within the EU or the EEA, and on the basis of the regime of the General Data Protection Regulation, what that would have meant is that the data flows from the European Union would have been guaranteed without any further contractual assurances or any other mechanism having to be uh, put in, in place. So that would have led to, to free movement of data between the UK and the EU and the EU and the UK. If, on the other hand, we look at what is more likely to happen, if, for example, the UK were to follow the GDPR without adopting it in, in its entirety, what, they would, what it would have to do, as other countries that have similar data protection laws, would be to seek the adequacy from the European Commission. That would mean that the UK would be a country to which European Union personal data could flow without any additional mechanisms in place. And of course, that would, be, that would make things a lot easier for global or pan-European businesses. But when you look at the possibilities of the UK going on its own, there is a whole range of possible outcomes that appear possible. If, indeed, if the UK were to keep the GDPR in its entirety, and if the Brexit were perhaps softer than what many people uh, fear, that could still result in an ideal situation from the point of view of pan-European businesses so that their data could flow back and forth between the EU and the UK. Again, uh, looking at a more realistic option like following but not quite adopting the framework under the GDPR, that would again mean that the UK would need to seek the adequacy of, from the European Commission. And what I think is 
fairly clear cut is that if the UK were to remain as it is with, the, with just the Data Protection Act, that adequacy and the ability to share data or to receive data from the European Union would certainly be compromised. So from the point of view of adequacy, which perhaps is what the government would, would like to achieve, whether they call it adequacy or not because of the political uh, implications of having to go and ask the European Commission to grant the UK data protection adequacy. But nonetheless, as, an, as a practical objective, what is clear is that for the UK to be in a position to just seek that level of adequacy for personal data, it would either have to be something like a NEFTA member or at the very least adopt a GDPR-like type framework. That is not very, is not an easy thing to do. And one of the challenges that the UK could encounter, even in the event that if it effectively follows the General Data Protection Regulation, would be that the surveillance regime, by that I mean the laws around investigatory powers, the, the, the enforcement, the law enforcement authorities, the intelligence services have in order to uh, tap into people's communications and carry out surveillance activities involving uh, electronic communications, that would be looked at by the European Commission very carefully. And if the experience of the U.S. is anything to go by, of course, we have seen how the regime originally under the safe harbor in the United States was regarded as not being sufficiently protective of Europeans' data. And the, U the U.S. is currently under pressure to continue to demonstrate that it has the right regard for that information. So the current UK surveillance regime is quite wide-ranging, and it could be a, uh, an obstacle for adequacy. In any event, what we are uh, looking at following Brexit is a long time frame of at the very least three years during which UK businesses would not be able to benefit straight away from an adequacy decision and would need to find an, a mechanism to allow data from the European Union to flow. All, all in all, is uh, a tall order. So what can we expect in, in that respect? This could be an, anyone's uh, guess, but looking at the direction of travel of the government and how the uh, the positions have been uh, placed by uh, the government and, and the European authorities, the most likely scenario would be for the UK to not be part of any kind of existing uh, arrangements like EFTA or certainly not the EEA. But at the same time, government, the government has indicated that it's probably prepared to accept, at the very least, an element of the GDPR. As I said, under that sort of situation, adequacy would be quite challenging. Something that is unlikely to happen is a version of the U.S. privacy shield that was the 
mechanism that was finally agreed uh, last summer with the, between the European Commission and the US Department of Commerce. The UK is unlikely to follow that model because at all times it is in the interest of the UK to argue that our data protection framework does not require a privacy shield because it's in itself adequate. So all in all, looking at the near future and how to ensure that UK businesses can guarantee the flow of personal data between them and their European subsidiaries or affiliates or other uh, businesses within the EU. There are a number of options that will need to be explored uh, as of now, pretty much. For example, the use of model contracts, which are approved by the European Commission, is likely to become a popular option between UK businesses and their EU counterparts in order to allow those European affiliates or, or third parties to transfer data from the EU. Within corporate groups, the clear winner will probably be bind the system of binding corporate rules, something which is already in operation. A number of companies in, in the region of 100 companies in Europe have already received BCR status. And of course, the ability to transfer data becomes uh, much more visible because if you have adopted and received approval for a system of binding corporate rules, that will allow you to transfer data freely across the world, irrespective of the level of protection of the local regime. So that would make things a lot easier for UK-based multinationals. And finally, perhaps that's a, the, the question mark is whether in the future, at least UK processors, those that, are, those that are processing data on behalf of the parties, will be able to rely on mechanisms like codes of conduct or, in, or certification, which are also mentioned by the GDPR as possible uh, sources of um, protection for, for data coming from Europe. So much speculation, but we're trying to um, provide an element of certainty at least there are some steps that can be taken now, apart from following very closely the negotiations between the UK government and the EU. But the, uh, the safest assumption to make is that UK businesses seeking to share data and receive data from the European Union will need to put in place some kind of mechanism to ensure that those transfers of data are lawful. And on this note, I'll uh, pass uh, the presentation to my partner, Joe Bannister, who will cover the issue of insolvency. Thank you very much, uh, Eduardo, and uh, uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm dealing with an area of law that uh, I suspect many listeners hope we will not have to encounter in practice, but I'm also dealing with one that very much is tied into passporting and at the moment is a very simple area to apply. Where one is dealing with insurers uh, in the European economic area that get into financial difficulty, uh, English law has implemented uh, through regulations the insurer winding up directive of 2001. And the rule for that directive is very simple. That basically says that if you have any insurer in the EEA, the restructuring or insolvency in relation to that insurer will be dealt with 
in accordance with the law of the um, home state regulator, and that must be rec recognized throughout the European economic area. No ifs, no buts. There are a couple of small exceptions to that, lying to the recognition of proprietary claims and the treatment of, for example, employment contracts, but the position is very clear, and above all, it is not tied to any sort of discretion. Uh, we think at the moment that the Great Reform Bill is going to preserve the uh, reorganization and winding up regulations, uh, which means that uh, until uh, there is an alternative put into place, that very simple regime is going to apply. However, as uh, others have said, we now know that uh, the uh, UK is not going to remain a member of the economic area. And therefore, there is, I think, a very real concern that what will happen is we're thrown back to a one-way process. If the winding up regulations remain a part of English law, then any uh, EEA insurer that comes to be uh, reorganized, wound up, dealt with in its home jurisdiction, we will have to recognize that process in the United Kingdom. However, the converse is that if we have, heaven forbid, an English uh, uh, insurer, a UK insurer that is in similar situations, whether or not other EEA countries and EU countries will recognize that process is going to be a matter of the discretion of the individual courts and conflict of law rules. If we end up in that situation, that is going to be totally inconsistent with the government's um, stated objective in a number of uh, proposals to reform insolvency process of producing a regime that is efficient, uh, predictable, and certain. Uh, one of the challenges that we face in restructuring is that uh, preservation of insolvency regimes is not seen as exciting by politicians, and it is seen as something you hope won't happen. The City of London Law Society, and I sit on the insolvency uh, law subcommittee of that, is therefore trying very hard to lobby the insolvency service to make sure that we don't get lost in some of the greater political noise of the process. And what's being focused on is I think there's a resignation that insurers, reinsurers, and other corporate entities uh, will not uh, be at the top of people's list. So we're going to try to persuade, uh, first of all, our own legislature to, to introduce regimes that are best in class in terms of rescue procedures, stays against creditor action. But then we're going to look to try and persuade the government to negotiate recognition of our processes and our legislation, accepting we'll recognize other EEA and EU countries that are prepared to agree to recognize our procedures. It's impossible as of now to tell whether we're going to get there. It's going to require a great deal of lobbying. And as I said at the outset of uh, that, both for insurers and indeed for other corporates, the real problem that we face, and the slide on the screen now is dealing with uh, entities other than insurers, is being thrown onto court discretion and thus real uncertainty in dealing with the orderly uh, recognition and realization of assets to creditors if we get into that sort of difficult situation. That really takes us uh, from an area that lies at the heart of passporting to an area that really lies at the heart of so much of the European Euro uh, Union regime, that of competition and merger control. And my fellow partner, Angus Coulter, is going to take us through that now. Angus. Thank you, Joe. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about what we may see coming up in competition law over the next two years or so. I, I'm talking partly about where the law is today 
um, but also what's going to happen on what I've called day one, which is the day that Brexit becomes effective, whether that's two years from now or after some transitional period. Overall, the law today, there is separate UK and EU competition law, but the laws are very closely harmonised. They're harmonised as a matter of substance, but also as a matter of process. There's also a very close degree of cooperation between the various organisations charged with enforcing competition law. That's primarily the European Commission at the European level, um, and in the UK, the Competition Markets Authority, but also the FCA which has not only the, the competition objective, but the competition powers um, in parallel with the, the CMA. Also, co close cooperation with national competition authorities in other European member states. So the big change is happening um, with Brexit. Um, there will be important elements of, within the, the Great Repeal Bill um, announced in the White Paper today. The, although lots of law is in UK law already, there's a very um, detailed read across in the way that that law is applied from European to UK law. There are no very strong drivers of change at the moment. Um, the, the, the cultures and aims of the UK and European um, enforcers are very similar at the moment, although we'll see whether that's still true in two years' time. Two key factors are we're likely to see a very substantial increase in duplicative enforcement between the, the UK and the EU level, and also real resource challenges for the UK authorities taking on what have traditionally been um, EU roles. Thinking first about um, antitrust law, so the, the laws on behavioural um, uh, restrictions on the way organisations organise themselves, uh, both on illegal agreements, whether fully illegal cartels or um, closer to um, a commercial agreement or, or abuses of a dominant position. At the moment, these laws are almost completely harmonized between the UK and the EU law, um, and EU cases are brought into UK law um, by Section 60 of the Competition Act. There's both the, the court cases in Luxembourg, but also decisions of the European Commission. There's also an extremely well-developed European competition network, a formal permanent arrangement of the, the competition authorities around Europe with a detailed protocol on case allocation between those bodies. So after Brexit, how will this work? The first question is how the read across from um, European to UK law will work. There are some key bits missing from UK law, which at the moment are imported from the, from the EU. Um, most notably block exemptions. The insurance block exemption is due to fall away um, shortly, um, so it will be gone before Brexit, but the, the vertical agreement block exemption will still be very important to insurance businesses. Um, that will either need to be replaced in UK law um, or um, some sort of read across developed. Um, there may be minimal practical changes and potentially therefore minimal opportunities for insurance businesses. Things which are currently um, permitted or not permitted in, for example, distribution agreements will be um, very similar after Brexit. Uh, an agreement, for example, which restricts uh, a, a company in the UK from selling into another European member state um, will almost certainly breach European competition law even after the UK leaves the EU. And some key areas like information exchanges, which are very important within the, um, the insurance area, um, are likely to, to remain key problems at both levels. There are questions for how the UK will go about enforcing um, comp competition law in this area and how it's going to prioritise the resources. 
Um, it may well look at different sectors and be concerned about practices which the Commission either hasn't been concerned with in the past or has soft peddled. Um, for example, the, the CMA has declared itself very interested in the various sorts of pricing transparency which exist uh, in the insurance sector and otherwise. On one hand, very in, much in favour of price comparison tools and other ways of allowing consumers to make informed decisions. On the other, concerned that um, some of that transparency, particularly when put together with um, pricing algorithms, can lead to lessenings of competition. There's also the question of whether the UK will take what have somewhat pejoratively been described as Me Too cases, situations where currently the European Commission will investigate a behaviour all across Europe, but in the future um, a Commission investigation may be accompanied by a UK investigation. The CMA seems pretty keen on such investigations, um, but clearly where both um, authorities are investigating, there's a, 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 an administrative burden on parties, but also a real risk of inconsistent outcomes between the, the two authorities. Also worth noting here, there will be a long tail of cases where, for some years to come, the Commission is investigating behaviour before the Brexit date, which um, has been was illegal at that point because the UK was part of the EU. It's not yet clear whether the Commission will draw a line and where the Commission will draw a line on the UK element of those cases. The other key area of competition law is the merger control area, so the, the rules limiting M&A um, uh, activity and um, also importantly in the insurance area, joint ventures. At the moment, this law is slightly less harmonised between uh, the UK and the European level than the antitrust area. There are important differences of, for example, uh, mandatory filings in Brussels, um, voluntary filings in, in the UK. Um, but nonetheless, there is a one-stop-shop principle built into both UK and European merger control law so that you don't need to make a filing to the EU and the UK on the same deal. There are also mechanisms which allow transactions to be moved to the right regulator. These are important in a lot of insurance transactions where um, very large companies are involved, triggering European thresholds, but the, any potential competition issue is felt at the national or subnational level. So the big changes after Brexit are that almost all of these mechanisms will go. The one-stop-shop principle is almost certain to, to disappear. It's very hard to see how that could be built into two separate legal regimes. Uh, and similarly, the transfer of cases back and forwards between um, the, the European Commission and national regulators uh, will be um, impossible. It is likely that there will be duplicative review of, um, a, of the same transactions um, where there is a, a cross-border element or a, an element in the UK and also in a European country. There's also the possibility that um, on a very large transaction in particular, an EU clearance is sought, but that gives a far less degree of comfort than it does today. Um, if, a, if a separate filing isn't made in the UK, there will remain a risk that at some point after a transaction has been completed, or maybe even worse, halfway through completion, the transaction is then also reviewed in the UK. On the substance of the review that will take place, there are almost certainly going to be inconsistencies that, that develop. At the moment, it's very easy to, to bring a, a European case um, and use that as persuasive uh, precedent in a UK case, or indeed vice versa, for example, on key things like market definition. And that's going to impact certainty around individual transactions, but also 
um, transaction planning. Lastly, um, although not strictly tied into to Brexit, I think it's important that we recognise the possible impact of the UK industrial strategy. Um, this isn't yet finalised, but certainly merger control is one area where the strategy could be um, implemented. Now, that might mean that particular deals are more likely to be waived through in the UK than otherwise they would be, but it might also see um, defence of, of um, UK businesses against acquisitions by non-UK um, uh, buyers. Thank you. And I'm going to pass back to Charles now. Well, that's the end of our webinar. Um, if you want to contact us, you can do that through the Contact Us icon at the bottom of the webinar page. You can also obtain more information on Brexit from the Hogan Lovells website. It only remains for me to thank our speakers and the team here for the work that's gone into this webinar. And with that, we'll sign off.